This is the AusChina Business Channel with Stacey Martin, our AusChina Business Specialist and Expat Financial Advisor. Experts, information and ideas on how to navigate business opportunities in Asia. This is SME Radio, powered by Eagle Waves Radio and broadcasting from Vivo Cafe, Sydney. Welcome to SME Radio. I'm Stacey Martin, host of the AusChina Business Channel. And today I have in the studio with me Ian Cameron. Ian uh, is a tourism consultant. He left the uh, Tourism New South Wales about four years ago. And uh, what Ian doesn't know about tourism, you don't want to know. So um, welcome to the studio, Ian. Hi, Stacey. Uh, welcome. I'm great to be here. Fantastic. So, Ian, you've been in the tourism game for about 30 years, uh, holding positions in Australia and overseas, uh, and were involved in Olympic uh, tourism marketing, uh, and have worked uh, in key markets including Europe, United States, Asia, Japan, and of course our um, neighbours in New Zealand. So, you know, you've had a pretty interesting career, Ian. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about the journey and what attracted you to be involved in tourism in the first place. Thanks, Stacey. Well, I think the first thing is that tourism is very much a people industry. So although I sort of stumbled into the role, I think I stayed within tourism because I had the opportunity to engage with a lot of different people, um, both in Australia and overseas. So it's a very stimulating environment to work in. Uh, Also, over the past certainly 20 years or so, there's been a rapid growth in international tourism especially. So it's been a very exciting time to be involved in tourism. Absolutely. And I think all of us, it's a bit of a dream job to virtually like be on holidays all the time. I'm sure you work very hard. Um, but you recently um, left Destination New South Wales. So I'm not has, I'm not sure if everyone's heard of New Destination New South Wales. Tell us a little bit about that uh, government body and, and what, they, what they do to promote tourism. Well, firstly, uh, it was an organisation was called Tourism New South Wales, which was the government agency. And then it merged with Events New South Wales about eight years ago. So Events New South Wales understandably had the responsibility for attracting events to New South Wales. In general, it didn't run events, but it certainly wanted to attract them and then market them to maximise the visitation. Of course, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of um, uh, uh, reasons why tourism uh, on, focused on leisure tourism and events should be working closely together. So as a result of that, the New South Wales government formed Destination New South Wales. So encompasses leisure tourism or all facets of tourism as well as events. So do they have a target for how many people they're looking to attract to Australia in those um, leisure and business markets? Yes, we do have a target, or at least they had a target. <laughs> Um, basically it fits in with the overall target for Australia. Tourism Australia is the national tourism marketing organisation and their target is about growth but also about expenditure. The three aspects for tourism is certainly attracting visitors, encouraging them to stay as long as possible or right. extend their length of stay and then similarly encouraging them to spend money. Because okay. the bottom line for governments to be involved in tourism is to encourage economic growth and they do that through creating jobs. So the more tourism you have, the more tourists, therefore the more jobs, more taxation and the more reasons why we're going to drive the economy. 
Okay, and so Australia being a relatively small economy, we've attracted a pretty large number of tourists. I mean, from China, it's just exceeded a million tourists um, last year. So what's the attraction for those in China of coming to Australia? Right. We, we should firstly be aware that the 1.1 million Chinese tourists, which is fantastic, but that comprises a number of different segments. So there's the leisure tourists, which we want to concentrate on. There's the business tourist, which is also important because they do leisure activities. As well for the Chinese market, there's a substantial number of Chinese students, yep. which also provide plenty of opportunities for SMEs to target them, to market their products and services to them. In addition to that, to the 1.1 million Chinese visitors each year, I often um, I often realise that a lot of businesses are overlooking the many Chinese residents that are living here in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. There's between four and 500,000 Chinese or ethnic Chinese living in Sydney alone. So that provides a huge opportunity combined with the Chinese tourism for, for businesses to target those particular markets. So, so what's the average spend of a, a, a Chinese tourist? Well, it's probably hard to, to say because it varies dramatically between the students who are here for up to 10, 11 months a year and, yep. and they may even return to China over that period. Uh, the business tourist, which is a very short-term stay, mm -hmm. and the China leisure tourist, and there's probably two different segments in, within the leisure tourism. There's the group tourist who comes down, stays a fairly short time, very packed itinerary, limited opportunities to spend money and they're not staying at the luxury hotels mm -hmm. but there's a growing market out of china also that is your luxury travelers they're looking at five-star hotels um, eating at good restaurants and really sampling the better things that a, a holiday has to offer so probably i wouldn't like to average out the expenditure because it's it would give it an, depends yeah it depends yep, a lot yep. and gives an un, unrealistic uh, idea of what the po opportunities are but certainly especially for that top end of market it's the same with any luxury tourist they've got money to spend they're looking for experiences and they're looking for value so um, many of the five-star hotels and, and, and other um, participants in the industry are, are looking to cater more for uh, Chinese um, tourists and business travelers what are some of the things the hotels have been doing well for a start the most important thing perhaps is to consider putting some of the information that they're sharing with their guests to ensure that it's in the Chinese language right and even so in doing that people should be aware that there's there's two Chinese languages that are used there's a, a traditional Chinese and there's a simplified Chinese so the majority of Chinese coming from mainland China will be looking at simplified Chinese. Right. So I'll be looking at putting some of the instructions in the compendium in the various bedrooms in Chinese. I'll be putting something in the menu in Chinese. I'll be ensuring that I'd have some Mandarin speaking um, or Cantonese speaking staff on my reception and perhaps within the uh, telephone areas as well. So. And what about catering to their tastes? Are they coming here because they want Western food or do they expect to see um, some of their sort of familiar foods at, you know, the breakfast buffet? Well, the, uh, the five-star, if they're staying in five-star hotels, in general, they're pretty savvy travellers. They're pretty yep. mature. They've experienced what the West has to offer. So they're comfortable with most Western meals. Having said that, they also do like to have a rice dish sometime yep. or at least every day. So I'd be making sure as a side dish or something on the main courses or whatever there would be rice. If it's convenient for hotels to include a... Uh, uh, Chinese breakfast, I would encourage them to do that. It doesn't have to be expensive and there's actually a great return, great profit margin if you like on providing Chinese breakfast. So it depends upon the individual hotels but I would certainly encourage them to consider that. 
with the group business they're not this is perhaps their first venture outside of Asia so they're very much looking for, for something that they're familiar with so by all means you would have to provide Chinese food or something that's going to be suitable for them as far as that went. And um, in terms of making it easy for um, Chinese visitors, you know, obviously things like um, how you take payments, you know, I've heard that, uh, you know, if you have something like, I don't know, a China Union pay for it, you, you, you'll get a much greater spend from the Chinese That's tourists. Is that right? Totally true. If anyone's interested in the Chinese market, they must look at uh, including China Union pay as one of the credit cards they accept. There's over three billion, three billion China wow. Union Pay credit cards in circulation in China. Now, most of those are for domestic use, but certainly when the Chinese travel internationally, they're using a CUP or China Union Pay card. You'll see the, the logo, the sticker in many of the retail shops around Sydney. That says to the Chinese, look, you're welcome here. Yep, you can yep. spend your money. And actually, it's a far better exchange rate. That's one of the reasons why okay. they're using those cards as opposed to a Visa or an Amex or a MasterCard. And you mentioned that the Chinese tourists like to have a packed schedule. Uh, often when we travel, we like to have a lot of sort of lays on the beach type of time, but they like to go from one thing to another. How can our various tourism operators make it easy for uh, their Chinese um, guests? Yes, certainly that, uh, that, that group market very much is looking for full itineraries, all meals included, and a number of attractions as they travel around the city or to areas like the Blue Mountains or the South Coast. Uh, I believe uh, a lot of our businesses can work far more closely together right. by not only targeting those particular Chinese groups, but seeing if there's any other non-competitive uh, product or complementary product that they can refer those groups onto. Like many uh, visitors, you're always looking for new, authentic experiences. So similarly, if some of our operators can refer those groups, refer those Chinese visitors onto the next particular product or service, they'll benefit, the groups will benefit, and they'll come back for more in future times. So we are only a, a country of uh, 22 million people, and that's like, the, uh, you know, same as a one town uh, or, or city in China. So collaborating as a brand Australia, Team Australia, working together and tapping into this market. Very much so. so. Um, that sounds like some um, great advice. Lots of opportunities for SMEs to cater to this market. Obviously, there are a few things that need to adjust, but certainly as there are more and more people um, coming to enjoy our fabulous country. Um, well, we've, we've uh, benefited from tremendous growth out of China and we're going to continue to do so. So I would urge most businesses, if they think they have a product or a service remotely that could be suitable or attractive to Chinese, I'd really encourage them to pursue that further because that it's going to be happening in the help? future. Is yes. that something you can help with? So your, your, new, your consultancy uh, in, is focusing on Chinese tourism, is that That's that right. right? Yep. That's okay, right. so how do, I, how do people, uh, listeners, get in touch with you Okay, then? well, I, through my LinkedIn address or through my uh, email address, which which is ianpcameron at hotmail.com. So it's a very Fantastic. simple address and I've got some Chinese staff or partners that are working with me as well so I can... Which is very important. So yeah. thanks very much, Ian. You've been listening to the Oz China Business Channel, SME Radio, talking Chinese tourism today. Thank you, Ian. SME Radio is backed by the power of the SME Association and its 30,000-strong national membership. For more information on the association and to become a member, please go to www.smea.org.au. Thanks for
for listening to SME Radio. This is a shameless plug for an advertiser, sponsor or partner. If you want your business name here and to reach our more than 33,000 members right across Australia, then give us a call. You can reach us via the website smeradio.com.au. Thanks for listening. Welcome to SME Radio. I'm Stacey Martin and this is the AusChina Business Channel, leveraging capital and capabilities. Uh, I'm in the studio today with Scott McDonald. Uh, Scott McDonald is the uh, founder of the International Family Office Association. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Stacey. I'm delighted to be with you today. Fantastic. So, Scott, tell me, what is the International Family Office Association all about and why did you start it? Well, obviously in Australia we take for granted the mature financial services, superannuation, trust law and those things. But of course in China and particularly with the emerging wealthy in China, all these concepts are new. So we worked out that to build a bridge between China and Australia might be a good idea if we share with them knowledge and education about these important issues in wealth preservation. Fantastic. And I mean, you, you're, I guess, a veteran of the financial services industry. You'd been around for a long time, even when I uh, joined, uh, might I say, a couple of decades ago, because you set up some of the really unique products uh, back in the early days, things like the Macquarie Cash Management Trust, Funder Funds, a range of different things. T- t- tell us a little bit what it was like in those early days in financial services here in Australia. Well, I didn't set up the Macquarie Cash Trust, but I helped expand the brand of Macquarie into what is now folklore in Australian investment management parlance. What we did understand that we were on a journey of new innovation. And of course, now when we look at China, they're almost where we were 30 years ago in terms of their product innovations, their concepts around... um, wealth preservation and saving for retirement. Of course, that's part of the issue about the cultural changes that have been going on in China for the last 30 years. Yeah, and look, saving for it's interesting, (coughs) one of my observations when I've been on the ground in China in the last sort of three or four years at various business missions is that they save a lot of cash. And one of the reasons, I think, is because they don't have that evolved, I guess, um, superannuation system, uh, the safety nets, you know, we have in terms of um, social security and, of course, you know, uh, medical. So they do seem to put a lot of money away for the future. Um, Perhaps that's having an impact on, you know, how they look at investing? I think culturally too, they've always been very family focused. Family is probably at the centre of the Chinese cultural universe. And of course, with the one child policy and less children to look after the elderly, they've been thinking about other issues. Um, It is a big social issue in China. What is going to happen to these people uh, that may or may not have retirement savings. Mm-hmm. But we have seen a, such <coughs> a surge in wealth, um, not for everyone in Asia, but certainly for, uh, you know, as people are moving into um, the cities and they're going into sort of new careers. And of course, with the um, huge uh, increase in e-commerce and a range of um, different things in China, how has that impacted on the way people manage their money? Well, I think there's a whole view in China about Um, the the new emerging wealth management sector. I mean, there is a view that um, international asset allocation is becoming more relevant to learn what's going on around the world and to take best practice into China. So what we're doing is taking 
intellectual property or knowledge about investment management through our not-for-profit platform, the IFOA, and then looking to show them how to invest internationally and to develop robust asset allocation uh, as part of their framework. But remember, they're coming off uh, a command economy. They're coming off communism and all the things that we take for granted, the, our superannuation, our trust law, um, which we've had a 30-year head start on, really, so they're really in catch-up mode. So um, you said that families are um, really <coughs> important. What sort of trends are you seeing um, in, in the way, sort of, uh, I guess, that next generation of uh, wealth is being addressed? Well, I think it is this issue of, of the concept of wealth uh, can be used for the benefit benefit of the family. Uh, there's a whole concept around legacy and philanthropy that is becoming more relevant. How is the family being regarded in the village where they may now make a contribution back to their their uh, beginnings? And uh, this is very important to the culture of, of all nations, but particularly the Chinese. So as they get wealthier, they're also learning about how to employ this newfound wealth. Okay. So it's quite interesting. That, that, that's a really interesting insight, <coughs> I guess, because many people here in Australia, all they really hear about was, you know, you mentioned international diversification and the investment that's coming to Australia, you know, Chinese buying up um, properties, farms, you know, other assets in Australia. Is that just the start of diversifying wealth? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the, uh, they're just at the beginning. I mean, the wealth creation that's occurred is probably... Um, unprecedented in modern economic history. Um, the Chinese have to be applauded for bringing so many people out of poverty mm. over the last 20 years. I think it's in the order of 700 million. I mean, wow. it's just mind-boggling that were marginal or, or struggling. Um, and of course, as part of that transition, many people have got extremely wealthy along the way. But okay. some of those families are actually giving back. and. Um, Philanthropy and um, charity, there's, there's a huge uh, awareness among the ultra-wealthy toward charity, but they don't quite understand the full complexities of legacy and philanthropy yep, as yep. the Western approach. But um, I guess having <coughs> um, started to adopt a lot of uh, Western uh, lifestyle, they're starting to have lifestyle diseases. And so there is an emergence where uh, many Chinese uh, philanthropists are looking at uh, cures for various uh, illnesses and contributing to those sorts of charities. What other things are they um, contributing to? Well, I think they're, they're leapfrogging the West in terms of their interest in, in technology and uh, health medical research and yep. services and you've got a very big audience there you've got a huge maturing um, demographic you've got like all nations of the west and around the world there's this huge uh, hump uh, that need medical services so anything that delivers more efficient smarter medical uh, solutions is going to be well adopted in places like China. And look, it's interesting that you say that because Australia has uh, world-class um, capabilities in a range of different sectors. Uh, financial services, obviously, is something that we're very familiar with, but also healthcare, aged care, 
farming, mining, there's a whole range of industries. So for our listeners, what, what do you think are some of the opportunities that Australian companies can take uh, from this? So with the foreign direct investment, I guess what we're finding is you know, they're currently buying assets, but you know if they're looking to invest more in, I guess, businesses or things that you know align with those type of values and needs, how can Australian companies uh, take advantage of that? Well, there's a huge interest now by Chinese uh, corporations in diversifying into private equity and directly into business innovations that can benefit global applications, which really means taking something, building it in perhaps Australia and then transferring it back into China. Now, the good things about Australia is we're not America. So we, we come from the basis where we are already in a good position to become potentially a trusted, reliable partner where we can transfer intellectual knowledge about investment, certainly some technologies. Don't forget the Chinese are terribly smart and terribly innovative in terms of picking the eyes out of good ideas, but there is still a great opportunity for Australian business and Australian entrepreneurs and innovators to build relationships and that's what the IFOA does. We don't go in and try and dictate, we go in and share knowledge, information, education and build trust with these people. And you've been up to um, China more than 20 times. I know you grew up uh, in Hong Kong and Singapore, but on your trips up to meet sort of uh, Chinese uh, entrepreneurial and investment clubs and and others, what's been your kind of insights from those? How how do you go about building those relationships? For a start, they're delighted that we are making the effort to engage with them, that we're holding out an open hand of friendship. There's a lot of nasal gazing that goes on in Australia with groups that get together and talk about how we should engage with China. What the IFOA has been doing for many years, we've been running events with partners in China where we actually get to the coalface. We actually talk to the ultra-high net wealth as a starting point because they are the influencers. We talk at the executive MBA school events. We talk at a range of events where we are sharing knowledge. Now, when you share knowledge and you're not asking for something in return, that's when you start to build trust. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, many um, Australian companies are wondering how to get into China. And it is, as you say, all about trust. You've got to know someone or know someone who knows someone. Um, Is there any opportunities for our listeners to get involved in some of these kind of events and different things? What sort of partners might you be looking for? Well, we've taken a number of state governments and corporations from Australia as sponsors, because obviously these things need to be paid for. And the response has been very interesting. The, The Audiences love learning from these Australian-based groups. And you've probably seen it yourself. Fantastic, yeah. So I think it's just an ongoing education that you have to start. There's no point waiting until they understand what it is that you offer. You've got to get up there and start to build these relationships. Look, and I think uh, many of the Chinese uh, and others will come to Australia for our university and education, but um, education is uh, not just what you learn at school, it's about education for life and practical skills, particularly in wealth management. And I think, you know, one of the, the things we learned from one of our previous guests, um, uh, Philip Peng from GRI, is that the wealth education is not coming down from their parents. 
uh, we need to kind of move forward and help people learn these uh, new skills as they become wealthier. So thanks very much, Scott, for uh, coming along today um, and talking to us about the International Family Office Association. Um, so if our listeners want to get in touch with you, how would they do that, Scott? Well, I think email is the easiest. So it's scott at ifoa.asia. Scott at ifo.asia. Fantastic. Well, it's been great to have you in the studio and thanks very much. I'm Stacey Martin and you've been listening to the Oz China Business Channel on SME Radio. SME Radio is backed by the power of the SME Association and its 30,000 strong national membership. For more information on the association and to become a member, please go to www.smea.org.au. Thanks for listening to SME Radio. This is a shameless plug for an advertiser, sponsor or partner. If you want your business name here and to reach our more than 33,000 members right across Australia, then give us a call. You can reach us via the website smeradio.com.au. Thanks for listening. Welcome to SME Radio, AusChina Business Channel. I'm Stacey Martin and uh, I'm delighted to be speaking to my good friend Winnie Lahadid who's uh, in the greater part of Western Australia, um, a key market for, for Chinese business over the years. Uh, welcome Winnie to the program. Thank you Stacey for having me. Terrific. So Winnie, um, you're a lawyer with uh, Hopgood Ganem. Uh, in WA and you've worked in a range of industries including uh, mining but I guess the key thing uh, Winnie is that being a I guess a a native speaker yourself you've seen such tremendous growth over the last um, 30 years Um, and I guess today um, you're very sought after as an advisor uh, for non-Chinese as well as Chinese inbound investment into Australia. So um, having seen that uh, tremendous growth and being on both the sides of inbound and outbound uh, Chinese investment, what have been your key observations? Yes, I'd like to share if I can group those past three decades. Uh, China's economy had gone through from a sweat economy uh, into aspiring economy and now an inspiring economy. What I meant by that is, uh, as we all know, in the early 80s, when they opened up the uh, region for people to actually have factories in China, we are producing a lot of um, goods and accessing cheap labor and cheap uh, um, environment and the land um, cost. And to aspiring economy, where well, a lot of the uh, income earner, a lot of them from factory ends, can see that they can possibly own a house, own a car, send the children overseas to study. And now, globally, we all have our eyes on China. It is an inspiring economy for the last few decades, able to generate double-digit GDP. Wow. So we've really seen huge growth in a very short um, space of time. Uh, But that's been the case with, um, I guess, other emerging economies. over time and I guess one of the things you sort of talk about is comparing uh, the diversity of China to perhaps the different countries in Europe. 
That's right. Um, I usually uh, will present um, the two map. Um, they're both Chinese map. Uh, Chinese is uh, China actually have uh, 22 um, areas of regions. Um, we call it provinces, and um, and they're classified by 34 such divisions. So 22 provinces, four municipalities, five autonomous region, and two special administrative regions. They are a union of uh, developing countries back in 2009, if we categorize it by GDP. Moving forward, the forecast of these regions, GDP projected by province in 2020 is a union of second tier developed and top tier developing countries. And we are talking about GDP for above a thousand billions. So that's one trillion. Wow, At this dumb, moment, um, just Zhejiang province, the last uh, published a figure 2014 GDP indicated it's 650 billion US, but projected to 2020, um, our economy, Australian GDP, will be nicely tucked in into the Zhejiang province. And that's <laughs> also the province where Jack Ma come from. Oh, yeah. And isn't that an amazing story, the Alibaba story? Um, so, you know, in China, you've seen that evolution uh, as they're sort of uh, industrialising and needing uh, resources. And Western Australia has been a big um, benefactor of that um, growth. Um, some people are saying that resources boomer is over. But over there in the West, what, what are you seeing? No, it's not over at all. As uh, the people in the actual mining industry or people understand that mining or resources generally, including oil and gas, are cyclical. And we can't continue to do what we did and expect the same result with a changing investment climate. What I'm seeing is a lot of consolidation and also with WA especially, a lot of interest in investing in gold and lithium assets. Um, out of WA or mining generally, we develop, Australians develop very, very smart technologies and this is being utilised all around the world. We have software that are actually developed in Australia and a lot of the mining software, I don't have the figures at hand, but actually developed in WA are utilised globally. So all these, um, it's, uh, it's indicating that there are assets that were listed with only one um, uh, uh, potential. And of course, when all this cost is becoming a real issue, um, people are getting a smarter way to, to access um, the value chain of mining generally. So it's really about innovation and uh, some of the capabilities that we have here in Australia. So another area yes. that I know that you've got a special interest in is um, aged care. And when I first heard about this a few years ago, I thought, well, isn't it the case that, you know, three generations live in one household? But, you know, there's been a lot of change with, uh, I guess, guess the next generation being educated overseas, having a different view of life. Um, so we have started to see um, certainly some great success stories of Australian companies exporting our aged care um, uh, capabilities. Um, what, what have been your insights there and what are the opportunities you're seeing for Australian companies in, in that sector? Yeah, we, we call it the grey economy, uh, the over 65. There are also figures indicating by 2050 more than a quarter of Chinese population will be over 65. Wow. Now 2050 we're still to 20 years ahead, but this is a good time to actually downbed the relationship. Um, what we, our strength is 
in intellectual property, like you mentioned about design of the buildings, our architect, our planner, and also operating this aged care and the workflow within within the facilities. Um, the opportunities are there are a lot of uh, property developer in China wanted to have this as part of their capability, but you can't have just a property developer approach without having the aged care operators and their in intellectual property in um, uh, early and in the design phase. So the land and property developer, because I was actually part of the Australia Week in China in April this year, there's several delegations being led into China and I went with the aged care and healthcare sector. We visited one facilities that are, you know for sure is actually developed by a property developer because we have a very, very wide corridor and there were railings on both sides of the corridor, but it's a really long distance. So if you were to fall, it, there isn't anything in between to assist. So that, that kind of building design really need the architect and the interior designer who has capability in HK to have an earlier discussion and actually um, develop something with a brand name in China for example if they can say it's foreign technology foreign established um, development they actually can pitch at a premium level and, and this is the area yeah. of the self-funded the, the reason why we have this sort of high level of population getting in there as you know with the one-child policies basically you have two sets of um, you two children with four sets of grandparents, and 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 um and it's it's essential. And they don't want necessary run of the mill. They're two end. China have a two speed economy, so you got the top premium end. And um, leading that, I want to share a conversation. OECD that um, also uh, had projection of 850 million people moving to middle class in China. And contrary to that, only 16 million were projected to move into middle class in the whole of Europe. That well, kind of gives you an aspect of prospect for what some um, business on the age care section, but also on the middle class. Um, so that's a uh, lot of yes. uh, opportunities for people who can, uh, I guess, get it right and navigate that. But as a lawyer, you're really seeing the inside of these transactions and helping uh, navigate not only the legal aspects here and in China, but also the commercial aspects. So uh, what, what's your sort of, I guess, closing comments in terms of things to consider during negotiation and structuring of deals and contracts? Yes, thank you for uh, for giving me that opportunity to talk a little bit about that. I think before entering any deal internally, and it, this is just um, having contracts with with overseas or with a uh, buyer or sell side, you have to have a few key points. What are your absolute um, terms, absolute items that you wanted to achieve going into a transaction? What are the areas you might consider compromising because you will gain more from having this new um, uh, contract, new relationship? And what are the showstoppers? This is the internal conversation one need to have very clearly. And with that, you can identify the right partner to be entering either JV or partnership or, 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 or buy and sell relationship. Because by by going through those items, you know whether this is just a shorter term transaction, you transact and you don't see each other anymore. But from my experience, you see a lot of transaction, what seems to be just the point of transaction, a lot of energy is using that to cut a deal that best suits yourself. 
but really they are longer-term relationships. And that's right, it's really all about... Yeah, absolutely, and it's really about managing Guangxi. So we could chat all day, Winnie, and as we often do, we're both passionate about the space. So um, thanks, Winnie. Um, We've been listening to Winnie Lahadid from Hopgood Ganem over in Perth, but you can help uh, people anywhere with their um, China uh, strategies, legal, mining, and all those insights. So how do we get in touch with you? Oh yes, um, I work with Hopgood Ganam. Um, my Perth office number is nine two one one eight triple one. Fantastic. Um, and we'll have those details on, on the website. Thank you very much. And of course on LinkedIn, as we would. So thanks very much, Winnie, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you again soon. This is SME Radio, powered by Eagle Waves Radio and broadcasting from Vivo Cafe, Sydney. Want to reach more small business owners? We can help. Advertise with us and connect with more than 30,000 SMEs across Australia. smeradio.com.au